Amen. You may be seated. Wonderful singing. <laughs> There's always one. There's always one. Open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. So good to be back with you this morning. I just returned last night from the Los Angeles area where I spent a week at the Shepherds Conference hosted by John MacArthur and Vody Bauckham and Steve Lawson, many other great preachers. So I'm refreshed and ready to go. So thank Yeah. <laughs> So praise the Lord for that. Uh, what a great, great week to be away and uh, be fed by those great men. Let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning as we go to his word. Father, help us now as we look at your word. Help us to feast upon these truths. Help us to obey it. Help us to worship Christ and you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw in chapter 16 that Paul and Silas were beaten, arrested, and thrown into prison. And what was their crime? They cast a demon out of a slave girl. The slave girl was a fortune teller, and she was bringing her owners much profit by her fortune telling. Of course, it was all demon-inspired and demon-possessed. When her demon was gone, because Paul had exercised her from there, commanded him to leave. Her masters were very upset because obviously their whole business model had now been disturbed. With no demon, she couldn't be able to tell the fortunes as she had before. So they complained to the magistrates of the city there at Philippi and complained to them that they were causing a havoc in the city. They were then thrown into the heart of a Philippian jail where at midnight, after being beaten severely, were singing and worshiping God by singing hymns at midnight. Then an earthquake happened. The chains of the prisoners were loosened, and the, and the jailkeeper, who was about to kill himself, was stopped by Paul and Silas and shocked that they were still there. Paul and Silas then said, that he must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. They go home to his family. Paul preaches to the family, and the family is saved, and they are also baptized. What a tremendous account here in the book of Acts, one after another after another, as we see the sovereignty of God bearing fruit through the gospel in every city across the Roman Empire. Now the church at Philippi has at least two families, Lydia and now the Philippian jailer and his family as well. Well, we're going to begin in verse 35 of chapter 16. It's where we left off last week. So they go, they were at the Philippian jailer's house Verse 35 says, when it was the day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. The magistrates are the very men who had ordered them to be beaten. 
And they're probably thinking that one night in prison and the beating they endured is enough for them to learn their lesson and to be on their way. So they let them go. Philippian jailer's like, hey, this is great news. Go, leave in peace. You don't have to worry about being arrested anymore. Just get out of here before they change their mind. Where a rational person probably would have said, okay, let's go. But Paul wasn't always so rational, was he? In verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Got to love the boldness of Paul. Well, Paul knew that he had the upper hand on them. Paul, what's the big deal? You are free. Don't cause any trouble. Just go to the next town and preach the gospel. Well, there's one thing that he didn't mention to the magistrates before he beat Paul and Silas. And that was that they are Roman citizens. See, Paul is a Jew, but he's also from Tarsus and he was granted citizenship in the Roman Empire. That's a huge deal. It is against the law for a Roman citizen to endure such injustice, not have a trial, be beaten and thrown into prison. You see, Paul and Silas weren't even given due process. These men complained and they're instantly beaten up and thrown into jail without any action of defense or anything. This is against the law. They're Roman citizens. You don't do this to Roman citizens. So Paul knows that they have beaten us publicly. Everyone knows about this. We're uncondemned. We are innocent. We didn't do anything wrong. And we're Roman citizens. Let them come and make this right. Let them come and do it. We're not leaving secretly. Let them come and let's make this public. If they want us to leave, they can come and do it themselves. Now, what is the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. The big deal is that the magistrates now themselves suffered imprisonment, if found to be true what Paul, what happened here at Philippi to Paul and Silas. The town of Philippi, which was a sanctioned Roman colony, could have its rights And prestige taken away from the Roman Empire. See, Paul knows this. Hey, all I've got to say is complain to someone and you guys are all in big trouble. You guys are all in big trouble. But Paul, I think, has something else in mind here. He knows he's going to leave the town eventually. But behind him, he's leaving who? Lydia and the Philippian jailer and his family. He knows that persecution is probably coming to them as well. And this is probably some sort of probably blackmail. If you you leave these people alone, I won't say anything. He has this against them now in a way, knowing what is to come here to Lydia and her family. Look at verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. I would love to have been a fly on the wall and seen the look on their faces. So they came and apologized to them. 
the very men who had ordered their beating, is now apologizing to them. Just like the Philippian jailer who, has, who had the charge of keeping them in the dungeon after he becomes a Christian is now washing the wounds of Paul and Silas. You see how God turns everything upside down? How God uses things for his glory? They took them out. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Please, <laughs> we, we apologize. We've made it right. That must have been good enough for Paul. So verse 40, they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. We're not told how much time has transpired here from the time they were in Philippi from when they first met Lydia. But now there is other brothers. There is the Philippian jailer's family. There's Lydia and other believers that they are seeing here and encouraging them, and then they leave. This is Paul's passion. He goes inside, preaches the gospel, disciples people, and then leaves them with great joy and encouragement. Amazing. They encourage them. He knows, and he's probably telling them, what happened to us will probably happen to you. You will suffer for Christ. However, God will be glorified through you. Stay faithful. King Jesus rules and reigns. This is his world, not Caesar's. This is his place, not Rome's. And it won't always be like this. Amen. We live in a world, as Fred brought up earlier in his prayer time, the world seems to be going crazy War in Ukraine, inflation, gas prices, everything that's going on, things that have happened over the last two years. The world is groaning, as the choir sang. Creation is groaning. But the promise and encouragement we have from God's word is that it won't always be like this. King Jesus will come. He will make all things new. He will make all things right And it will be like that forever. Be encouraged, church, especially over the course of the last two years with COVID and everything that's happened. And now what's happening now, things get better before they get worse, but they will get better. And when they do, it will be better than better. It will will be better than it's ever been. And it will always stay like that. King Jesus is coming back. Amen. Let's go to chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue there of the Jews. Let's bring up the map there as we've been looking at that and understanding where geographically where these places are. Here in the top left, you see Philippi. That's where the Philippian jailer was there and Lydia. They leave there. They go through Amphipolis, which is about 30 miles to the southeast. And then they go on to Apollonia, which is 30 miles from there. It's about a day's journey in between. And then they wind up in Thessalonica. Remember, this is the modern-day country of Greece. Macedonia is the region there of the Roman Empire. Thessalonica was a capital city of Macedonia, this Roman province. It was a very big city of 200,000 people. 
It was an important city commercially because it was a port city and very important for trading there during the region of the Roman Empire. And so they go there. And of course, this is the people that Paul eventually writes Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians to. Let's see what's about to happen here. Look at verse two. As Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is Paul's MO. He goes into a new town. He finds a synagogue where there's Jewish people and he begins to explain the scriptures as was his custom says. He says he spends three Sabbath days. So he's there over three Saturdays. Three Saturdays in our language. Three Sabbath days there in Thessalonica. He's going there every Sabbath. He's opening up at the scriptures. And he's showing them Christ. Look at the language that Luke uses here. He reasoned with them. The word reasoning here means to have a conversation with an emphasis to persuade. It involves an argument, not like an argument like they're in a a fight, but like an argument like a lawyer would make in a court of law. He's making an argument to prove a point. Here is Paul, and he goes in there and is reasoning them with them invoking a debate, invoking questions, something that they must come to the conclusion of. And what is he reasoning from? Is he reasoning from culture? Is he reasoning from his personality or his experiences? No. What is Paul's authority? He is reasoning with them from where? The scriptures. It is the Bible, it is the Old Testament here that Paul uses as his authority, as his emphasis to reason with them, to make them and see them and show them and lead them to a place where they can be persuaded from his argument. The scriptures is our authority. We need to be careful when we share the gospel with others because sometimes we confuse our testimony of what happened to us with the gospel. Your testimony is wonderful, and it has the story of how you came to faith in Jesus. But your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony doesn't have power to save. The scriptures do. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ Paul didn't come and necessarily give them and reason from them what happened on the Damascus Road. He reasoned from them from the scriptures to prove his argument, prove his point. It is God's word that convicts and convinces and leads the sinner to repentance. Not human wisdom, not philosophical arguments, but this is what God has said. Thus says the Lord. You want to know what God has said? This is what, the, this is what God has said. Now, let me show you 
what that means and how that how we arrive to the truth from what God has said. He explains and proves, Luke writes. How does he argue? What's his argument? He explains. He opens up the Bible and he explains and proves his truth, the truth in that scripture. This is ultimately what preaching is. Preaching is an argument that the pastor or preacher makes. This is what God has said. This is what it means. And now this is what you must do. It's a persuasion. It's an argument to come to a conclusion, explaining and proving. And that leads to action on the, on the part of the hearers and the listeners. Well, what's his one point that he's going to make? The one point he's going to make is this, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That's his point. What's his argument? It is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And what's his conclusion? Where does this truth lead us to? What's the persuasion that Paul wants them to come to grips with and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what is he explaining explaining and proving from the scriptures? That the Christ, and the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, that the Messiah was to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is still an argument that we must give the Jewish people today. For it is the Jewish people, this is one of the reasons why they reject Jesus. They see the Messiah and the promises of his coming in the Old Testament. But what they do, they miss all of the promises of his first coming. Of the suffering servant of the Lord. You'll be reading about that soon. And the resurrection from the dead. And they skip over those promises and confuse and conflate them with Israel or prophets or other people. And they're only looking towards the promises of the second coming. What we would call the second coming, they would call the first coming. Where the Messiah comes in power and glory and there is peace on earth. And God's people are restored and all of his promises are fulfilled. That's true. The problem is is that the Jewish people conflate and confuse the first coming promises with the second coming promises. Therefore, they do not believe that the Messiah is to suffer or rise from the dead. And this is why they reject Jesus. The Jewish people believe that, as the Bible say, that When Messiah comes, he will defeat the enemies of God. Why do they reject Jesus as the Messiah? Because they see him as the one being defeated by the enemies of God. So this is a massive problem. The truth that is missed, as Paul is saying here, it was necessary that the Christ would suffer. And rise from the dead. They don't believe in Jesus as being that Messiah 
because they don't understand what the prophets foretold. They only see a victorious King of David-like warrior coming back, which is true. But before the crown of glory comes in the heavens to redeem the world and restore righteousness, to set up his new heavens and new earth, there is first a cross that must come first. There is blood that must be spilled. There is a Passover lamb that must be sacrificed. They didn't think then, nor do they think now, that it is necessary for Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. So here is Paul going into the synagogue, knowing that they don't understand this truth. And he focuses in on those words. It was necessary. That's an important word. It means it's needed. It must happen. And where is he saying this? Is he making it up? He's reasoning with them from where? The scriptures. I didn't say it. Isaiah did. Daniel did. Moses did. He's opening the scriptures and showing them that this is not a new religion. This is not a new concept. This is not something that we decided was a good idea. This is the way it was always supposed to be. And his point is, Jesus is the fulfillment of that suffering servant of the Lord. That Jesus did suffer. And he rose from the dead. How does Paul know that? He saw him. He saw the risen Christ on that Damascus road. He's an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as are all those apostles and the 500 who saw him after his resurrection. His argument is that the Messiah was to suffer and rise from the dead. And the conclusion he wants him to make is what? This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is that Messiah. He did all that was necessary. This is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the word that means good news. What is the gospel? Let's see if you remember. This is the two... This is the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. Remember? Say, say it with me. It was a year ago. This is the two. This is the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. That's the gospel. How is that defined, Dan? Well, 1 Corinthians 15. That's exactly what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Look at that with me. Paul says this to the Corinthian church. Now I would remind you, brothers, of what? The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... 
What is the gospel? It is the most important truth because it is what divides those who know Christ and will be saved from their sins from those who don't. It is of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What's Paul doing here? Reasoning with them from the scriptures. What's Paul's authority? It's always the word of God. The preacher has nothing else to say but what God has already said. Preachers need to get out of the way, shut up, and only say what God has said. This is first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. What? In accordance, read it, in accordance with the scriptures. This is where Paul gets his definition of gospel, death, burial, resurrection. And where is it from? Is it a new concept? It's from the scriptures. What scriptures? They had no New Testament then. Paul is writing the New Testament. He's writing his letters, Holy Spirit-inspired, God-breathed words to these people. What scriptures does he refer to? The Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, Genesis, through Malachi. In accordance with the scriptures, this is what God has said. Paul goes into those Jewish synagogues, and that's what he does. He argues to convince and persuade. Here's what's true. Now, this is what you must do based on that truth. It's a message of necessity. And it wasn't just Paul who said it. It was also the message of Jesus In Luke chapter 24, if you would turn there, in verse 25, if you remember the scene, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and he finds two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and he starts talking with them. He says, what's going on? They said, how can you not know what's going on? Their hearts are blind. They don't realize and recognize it was Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says to them, oh, foolish ones. Because remember, these guys are thinking, wait, we thought Jesus was Messiah and he died? Jesus was Messiah and he died? How could that be? What does Jesus say to them? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not, what's that word? Necessary, say it. Necessary. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a sermon that would have been to hear. How the Lord would open up the Old Testament and say, that's me. 
This is about me. This is what I did. This is who I am. They were writing about me, and now I have fulfilled it all. Again, this is a message that's been missed by those who have hardened hearts and blind eyes who are the precious Jewish people. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. This is also the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. What did Peter preach in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3? And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter gets it. This is what Isaiah, what he witnessed with the Lord, with his bruised and bloody and torn body. He saw the suffering of Jesus firsthand. And when he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came down and filled him, he understands now. This is what the prophets spoke about, that the Messiah would suffer. God fulfilled this very thing. That's Peter's argument. And what is it based on again? The scriptures. Again, why aren't churches and pastors just preaching the word? Why? It's not rocket science. It's not hard. Just do what God has said. Paul refers to the scriptures. Jesus refers to the scriptures. Peter refers to the scriptures. And what's Peter's conclusion? What's his persuasion? What does he want them to do because of his argument? Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This was also the message of the Apostle Paul as he stood before King Agrippa in chapter 26 of the book of Acts. What does Paul testify then? To this day. I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Again, it was necessary. It was necessary that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. Again, it's the message of the apostles. It's the message of Christ. It's the message of the prophets. It's the message of the Old Testament. This is the gospel. The gospel is not advice on how to live. 
The gospel is not self-improvement and self-help tips on how to live your best life now. The gospel is the glorious message that you and I are sinners who stand guilty under the wrath of God, fully deserving of his judgment because of our rebellion to him, that we've inherited the sin of our father Adam and live and walk in his footsteps from birth. But God in his mercy and God in his grace has sent Jesus to us to take our punishment, that he would suffer instead of us, that he would live although he died. See, we die and we stay dead, but Jesus dies and he lives. The gospel is not that Jesus just died on a cross. That's only half a gospel. What is the gospel? This is the two. This is the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. If Jesus just died on the cross, we'd all still be dead in our sins. But Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And that is the hope and promise that we have. That although we die, we also live. Because the wages of sin has been totally and completely atoned for, paid for. It was necessary. Who made it necessary? Me and you. We made it necessary that he would have to suffer. It was God the Father who poured his wrath on him. It was God who accomplished it from beginning to end. But the reason is our willful rebellion to God. And because we are rebels, there is only one thing that God has commanded for all peoples to do. Repent and believe in him. Repent and believe in what Jesus Christ has done. This is the message of the Bible. This is how someone becomes a Christian. This is why Paul goes into the synagogue and is reasoning with them from the scriptures. Here's my point. It was necessary that Messiah would suffer and rise again, die and rise again. And now you must believe in him because this Messiah, his name is Jesus. I've seen it. I've talked to him. I believe in him. So must you or you will face God's wrath. And the message has not changed in 2,000 years. We go in and reason from people with the scriptures and we show them who Jesus is. We show them who God's Messiah is and gospel is and we call them to repentance. We call them to repent. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Repentance is the fruit of the gospel bearing, growing roots deep in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the evidence that we have believed. Repentance is not a way to believe, but it's evidence that we have believed in him. If you've said a little prayer or checked a little card and you walked an aisle, but your life hasn't changed, then I would check your own heart. If you're still living in your sin, if you've not repented from that sin and turned to Christ, it's probably, it may be proof that you're not a Christian This is why all the prophets, all the apostles command God's people to repent, repent, repent. It's an often forgotten word today, but without repentance, we can't truly preach the whole gospel. 
and persuade men and women of what they ought to do in light of God's truth and God's word. We made it necessary. God the Father accomplished it by sending his son, punishing his son, raising his son from the dead so that everything that happened to Jesus is what we would have had to have paid but no longer owe because Jesus paid it all. And the life that we would have died apart from God, separated from God, under God's wrath, Jesus fulfilled in three hours on the cross. Perfectly, righteously, holy. And he lives. He lives. I know Easter is not till next month, but guess what? He lives. And by the way, is Resurrection Sunday only one day a year? The reason we worship on Sunday is why? Because resurrection is every day. Resurrection is every Sunday. This is why the first Christians met on Sunday instead of Saturday. The Sabbath was the day of worship for the Jews, but they changed that to worship on the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day. Why? Because he rose from the dead on Sunday. So let us not make that once a year, please. Let's make that an every Sunday reality. This is the Lord's Day. He's risen from the dead. I mean, the illustrations we can give are endless. Abraham and Isaac. Here, I'm sure Paul is explaining Abraham and Isaac. God commanded Abraham, take your son, your only son, walk up the mountain and kill him. The promised son. Son, I promise I'd give you in your old age. Take him. Kill him. Abraham believed God. Walked up the mountain with his only son, Isaac. Carrying the wood. Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham's response is, the Lord will provide. They get up there. Abraham is about to kill his son, and the angel stops him. Lord stops him and provides a ram caught in a thicket. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham's faith was so powerful and so rooted in God that he knew that even if he did kill him, that God's promises cannot be violated and that even if Isaac died, God would raise him from the dead. What is that but a foreshadowing of the gospel? The father giving his only son to die. The promised son. But God's promises cannot be null and void. And God would have raised them from the dead even if he did it. How about Jonah? Here's God's prophet sent to God's people. The Ninevites, they believed they were God's people. To repent and turn from their sin. And on the way, he, of course, he disobeys God. He's the disobedient prophet. Selfish prophet. But he disobeys God. He takes the punishment. Gets swallowed by a big fish. Spends three days and three nights. Gets vomited out. Goes to the people. The people repent. And Jesus uses Jonah as an example 
and promise of resurrection. Jesus says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so will the Son of Man be. You have Abraham and Isaac, you have Jonah, and then, of course, you have Isaiah 53, which we will be reading in detail over the next few weeks. But I just want to focus on one verse as we conclude our time this morning. We know that Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. It was a long time ago, I know. He met him. He heard him reading Isaiah 53. Do you understand what you're reading? Well, is the prophet speaking about himself or someone else? And Luke writes, at that time, Philip got in the chariot, opened up the scriptures, and explained to him that this was about Jesus. What was that man reading? Isaiah 53. I just want to take one verse out of that. One verse about how Isaiah speaks about death and resurrection and the suffering of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah and his suffering. And look what he says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Speaking of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. He has put him to grief. Here we have God's wrath being poured on Messiah. We see the suffering of the Messiah, not only in this verse, that he is crushed. That is a violent word. A horrifying death. He has put him to grief. You see Jesus sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden. Agony, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, God the Father gave his son as an offering, a sin offering for his people. But here's the good news. Although the Messiah dies and is crushed and put to grief, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. His offspring are the generations to come after him. Let me, when you die, you don't get to see your great, 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 great grandchildren, do you? Let alone, you're blessed enough to even see your great grandchildren. Maybe some are blessed to even see grandchildren. But the promise of the suffering servant is that although he dies, he shall see his offspring. How does that happen if someone dies? Unless you're raised from the dead. He shall prolong his days, which is a Hebrew idiom that says everlasting life. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Whatever he does will be successful. He will fully accomplish God's will. And one verse in Isaiah... 53, and by the way, there's a whole lot more. I wrote a whole book on it. You got to read it, okay? I wish I had all afternoon, I would just read it to you now. But in one verse, we see what? What Paul was saying to them in the synagogue. This is not new information. 
It's necessary. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead. How do they respond? Look at verse 4 of Acts 17. How do they respond? And some of them were persuaded. Praise God. Not all of them were happy for some. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And here is the birth of the Thessalonian church. Now the gospel could bears fruit in Thessalonica. And what was the message that gave birth to that church? It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. So now you must believe that this Messiah, his name is Jesus. And some of them were persuaded. Some believed. Paul, we've heard your argument. We see it. We believe it. Just like Lydia, just like the Philippian jailer, just like the Ethiopian eunuch before them, just like all people who hear the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise is that you will be saved. This is what happens to these dear people. And so now I ask you, have you been persuaded? Have you been persuaded? Have you believed that Jesus is who he said he is? that he suffered for you, that he rose again from the dead. That is the gospel. Putting your faith alone in Christ alone, by his grace alone. Nothing you have done, nothing you have brought to the table, not your baptism, not your church membership, not your good deeds, all of that will only lead you to hell if that's all you've got to offer. The only way a person becomes born again and forgiven of their sins is by placing their trust in Jesus Christ alone in the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. And it was necessary. I made it necessary. And God completed the necessity of my salvation. I call on you today to repent of your sins and trust in this Christ It is necessary for you to believe, for no one is promised tomorrow. You could die today and slip off to a Christless hell. Today is the day of salvation. Believe now and repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. Stop playing games with God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Thank you for the few moments we've had today to pause and to see the evangelism of the Apostle Paul. How the scriptures are his authority. They were the authority for Peter and for Jesus. Your word is what gives light to darkened hearts. Give new birth through your spirit to all those who are listening to my voice who have not yet believed, who have not yet trusted in Christ alone. May they become born again. May they believe. May they be saved. Father, I'd be foolish to believe that everyone listening to my voice in this room is a Christian. 
You know the hearts of every person. Draw them to yourself and do what only you can do. Use your word. Hide my weaknesses. Let them see Jesus. In your name, amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning and sing a closing song. If I can help you in any way, if I could explain something further, if you need to become Christian, please let me know. God bless you. We love you. Let's sing.